Thanks, Krista. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. We started a new series going through the book of Acts this year, and uh, we are just now uh, hitting chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. So open up to Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and walked and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, grant us understanding. Lord, even in, in just reading a narrative of, of your work among your people in the early days of the church, even when they're just trying to replace Judas with another disciple, Lord, there's much to understand and to glean. We pray that you would bless us with hearts that are ready to receive your truth and to rejoice in it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I really want to be an encouragement to you guys today, to everyone. I want to offer a word of hope, something that I think will lift our heads, but you may uh, raise an eyebrow uh, when I say something like, God does not need you. Now, some people kind of push back against the idea, against, against the sentiment, God doesn't need me. What do you mean by that? What are you suggesting? And some of us struggle with this because most people want to be needed. We like to feel necessary. And sometimes we want to feel important and it becomes a matter of, of pride, but we all do want to feel valuable like we're worth something. Nobody wants to feel worth, worthless or useless. We want to be appreciated. That's not bad. That's good. In fact, those are important things uh, to, to sense and to desire in this world, in all of our horizontal relationships. But what we're going to see here in this passage is that God does not need you, but he delights to use you. And if you can come to grips with this, that God does not need you, but he delights to use you, you can find not only humility, but joyful confidence and motivation as well. And we're going to ultimately see this in the gospel. 
and in Christ. But let's walk through this passage together. We're trying to get an understanding of what God is doing in and through his people and what this teaches us about church life today. And so here we are, uh, you can really def- divide up Acts 1, 15 through 26 into two basic sections, right? It basically boils down to, there's a bit of focus on Judas the betrayer, and then there is a focus on the replacement, right? So just think betrayer, 15 through 20, uh, replacement, uh, 21 through 26. That's kind of how we're gonna divide up the passage. So in verses 15 through 20, we see that the church is still gathered together. It's about 120 people, right? That's what it says. It's about 120 people are gathered together in the upper room. We've already covered this in the weeks previous. Now they're in this upper room, which is like a big lodge where people would stay and hang out. They would eat, they would sleep uh, for a period of time. So they're up there, like over 100 people, they're up there waiting under Jesus' command, waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend upon them and empower them to do the thing that Jesus has called the church to do, which is to go out back into the world being witnesses to Christ's resurrection, to tell the truth about his life, death, and resurrection. The the church is supposed to be out there making disciples, but before that can happen, the Holy Spirit must first descend. And so that's where they're at, gathering together. And of note for us is that Peter is the one that stands up and begins to talk. This is, this is helpful because Peter is one of the most important figures in the New Testament, one of the most important leaders in the early church. And we can see it happening. Like when you think of Peter, a lot of us, when we think of Peter in the gospels, we think like, eh, big mouth, a uh, little too quick. He doesn't think, he, he sometimes speaks or acts before he thinks it out. It's kind of how we think about Peter. And then he, like, he denied Christ three times when he was following him from a distance. We think like Peter, but Peter uh, is... A, a man of God who loves the Lord and he begins to very quickly be established by the church as a main leader. So Peter is standing out and right here he stands up in the midst of their waiting and praying, right? So they're waiting, they're praying, they're, they're eagerly anticipating what the future holds for them as they go out to do this, this mission that God has given them. And Peter stands up and he's like, we've got some business to handle. We've got to take care of some stuff. All right, we can't just... We're not just killing time here. We're praying, we're worshiping, we're singing songs. Like, it's all great. Uh, but we, we're, we're, down, we're down a man, we're down a leader. We've got 11 apostles here. Uh, we need a 12th. Jesus chose 12. We're down one because Judas went astray. And so they have to be about this business of, of appointing another apostle, which, by the way, I like. I like this because... The, the, the idea that they're gonna like, oh, listen, we actually, we gotta get organized here. We gotta, t- we gotta make sure that we have enough leaders in place as we're sending people out, right? Like this is a part of church life. You've got to get organized. You have to appoint leaders. You, you, you have to take care of some business that might not seem super exciting. Going out and preaching the gospel or translating the Bible into another language, exciting. Appointing a leader, maybe not as exciting, but here it is, very important, especially because we're here, we're talking about one of the apostles. So Judas has to be replaced. A lot of you know who Judas is. If you don't know who Judas is or was, uh, Judas was one of the 12. One of the 12 picked by Jesus, right? So Jesus picked these 12 people to be his close disciples, right? Jesus had many disciples, but these were the 12, those that he was tightest with. And Judas, one of those, uh, good with numbers, seemed to like handling the money, so... The disciples let Judas handle the money. And uh, not only did Judas handle the money, in John 12, 6, we read that uh, Judas liked to take some of that money for himself. 
It's messed up. He literally stole from Jesus. He like literally stole from the apostles. He was a part of this seeing God at work that close to the Messiah. And he is constantly feeding his own lust for monetary gain. Judas was a man characterized by a love of money. So there he is, uh, managing the money, skimming some off the top just for himself. And he turns out to be the one who betrays Jesus. The religious authorities of the day, the chief priests, you know, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were all looking for reasons to get Jesus in trouble because they didn't like his message, they didn't like his theology, and they certainly didn't like how they made them look like themselves, like hypocrites. They didn't like that. And so um, the chief priests in particular, right, the Jewish religious elite they were looking for a, an opportunity to get their hands on Jesus and arrest him for heresy so that they could somehow condemn him to death. Well, Judas starts working with the chief priests and he says, I'm, I'm your guy, man. I'm your inside man. You pay me money because that's how Judas rolls, right? He's like, you give me some money, give me some silver and I'll lead you to him. And they're like, well, how are we gonna know who, which one he is? Because like, y'all look the same, right? Just a bunch of dudes walking around with robes and beards. And he's like, I will go up to him and I will kiss him on the cheek as a greeting. Then you'll know. They say, great. So... On the night that Jesus was portrayed, the night that he instituted the Lord's Supper, he goes out to pray and Judas brings the guards with him and uh, he betrays Christ and Christ is arrested and put through a kangaroo court. He is found guilty and then passed on up the chain and is ultimately crucified. That's Judas. Judas is obviously out, right, as a disciple. But he's not just out as a disciple, out as an apostle. He's out because he killed himself. That's hard. That's dark stuff. There's no indication that Judas actually repented. There's no indication that he was filled with godly remorse for what he did. But he was certainly so internally conflicted and tore up, he didn't know what to do. He despaired for himself, and he wound up hanging himself. And... and what Peter says is the scripture all spoke about this. The scripture has been hinting at this, teasing this out for quite a long time. And so he quotes from these two passages, one from Psalm 69, one from Psalm 109. And in Psalm 69, 25, it's this, uh, may his camp become desolate and there be no one to dwell in it. This is originally a psalm that was targeting uh, the enemies of God. And it was all about judgment going against God's enemy. And of course, Judas is fulfilling that role gloriously or ingloriously. And then in Psalm 109, verse 8, right, let another take his office, the replacement of the office. This is a, a, a depiction of judgment against the accusers of God's people. And so we don't have time to get into how the apostles interpreted the Old Testament scripture and applied it to these current events. Um, that's a whole nother discussion. But Peter is standing up to say, hey, listen, we knew this was going to happen or we should have known that this was going to happen. Scripture testified that it was going to happen. So here we are. We need to take care of this. But before we kind of get into the replacement, we do need to address Judas' death because there is in the minds of some people a conflict here, a contradiction even. And if you, if you hang out with people that, that try to point out contradictions in the Bible, this is one that they, they like to bring up. They're like, oh, so uh, it says in Matthew that Judas hanged himself and it is hanged, it's not hung. You, a plant is hung, a person is hanged. If just, you don't know, now you know. Uh, uh, it says he hanged himself, but then in Acts, Luke says that, well, no, he, uh, he fell and burst open and his guts poured out. Contradiction. 
And like many things, when you have different people writing about the same event from different perspectives, sometimes there's not a contradiction there as much as there are just different bits of information. And, uh, and most scholars who study the scripture uh, and, and look at these passages uh, essentially answer this by taking those two accounts and seeing that they actually fit well together. So just to give you a bit of context, in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse five, it says, and throwing down the pieces of silver, Judas was given silver for betraying Christ. So throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself some kind of conflict, some kind of despair in his soul. He runs away, throw, he doesn't want the money anymore, throws it back in, goes and hang, hangs himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said it's not lawful uh, to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. They admit it what it is, they know what it is. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So here we have an account of, of Judas ha- hanging himself, but then in Acts, it says that he fell headlong and burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Actually, it's pretty descriptive. Um, so when you're looking at this, I think the, the, the simplest way to sort of wrap your head around it is just four words, right? Uh, hanging, bloating, falling, bursting, hanging, bloating, falling, bursting, hanging, bloating, falling, bursting. Remember that, right? Hanging, bloating, falling, bursting. Because uh, that's probably what happened. He probably did, in fact, hang himself um, and he expired. And, you know, it's a field that's uh, empty and not in use. So he remained there. And as his body decayed, his body probably was swelling up and either the rope broke or the branch broke, but he fell and burst open. And so depending on kind of what part of the story you're emphasizing, you might say like, man, when, when, when Judas died, he, he just burst open all over the ground. Or you might say, wow, he just, he, he, he hanged himself. There's not a contradiction here, but there is a tragedy here because Judas had every opportunity, every opportunity and more to respond to the offer of forgiveness and grace and mercy because Jesus offered it to him as much as to anybody else. He was as close as you could get to Christ, the son of God, and he never really received him. He never, he never really went to Jesus as much as he went about all of his ministerial duties and who bought the field? I know it's, it, here in Acts, it's like, oh, it says that Judas bought the field. Uh, in Matthew, it says the chief priest bought the field. And again, it, it looks like, well, it was Judas' money, right? So the, the, the field was purchased with his money, but it was technically purchased by the chief priest. They couldn't take the money back and put it into their account. So it just depends on how you're parsing out the story. This field of blood is... It, it gets that name, right? Everybody in Jerusalem, oh, that's the field of blood. And there's two reasons why you can see that. I mean, it's called the field of blood because that's where Judas burst open. I mean, it's, it's a horrifying thing. But it's, it's also called the field of blood because it was purchased with blood money. It was, it was purchased through the betrayal of Christ. So, this is the need. Judas betrayed Christ, abandoned the disciples, and killed himself. And now, 
The disciples have to pick a replacement. And so in verses 21 through 26, they're going through this process. And the first thing in verses 21 and 22, they actually get to these qualifications, like how it's going to work. You see it. So one of the men, this is, you know, Peter talking. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up, one of these must become with us a witness to the resurrection. So, okay. All right, so they, they, they need to have been with us. They need to have been with Christ's ministry. They need to have seen him from his baptism through his preaching, miracles, death, resurrection, and ascension. We need one of these people, and there are people there, more than, the, more than these 11. And they narrowed it down to two people, Joseph and Matthias. These two guys, Joseph and Matthias, these are guys, meet the qualifications, good guys, godly guys, and what I love is that there's no favoritism. There's no church politicking going on. Because if you've listened, this church is, is not like a lot of other Baptist churches or Southern Baptist churches because I've been in those churches where there is a whole lot of politicking going on about who's going to be the deacons and who's going to be the elders. And usually they don't have elders, they just have deacons. And there's like a popularity contest. There's all kinds of weird stuff going on. But they don't do that. There's no favoritism. There's no who's better, who's more gifted. There's none of that. Um, there's, uh, there's nothing political about it. In fact, they get to this point where they've narrowed it down. It's going to be one of these two guys, but they don't choose. Instead, they cast lots. They cast lots. So if, if, if you've been reading the Bible for a while, you've come across this, this habit that the people of God have. And maybe it's not a habit, but there are occasions when they will cast lots. Now, casting lots is not something that the Jews created. Casting lots has been around for as long as we've got recorded history. And uh, casting lots was essentially like rolling dice, right? It was, a, it was a way to force a decision without any one person making that decision, right? You've got, a, you've got a few choices. You're not going to choose one of them yourself, so you roll the dice, and it will determine what the outcome is, right? It, it's a way to avoid human interference, right? And so the Jews actually pick this up, and from time to time, you'll see the Jews doing this. And the reasons the Jews, and the, re, the primary reason the Jews did this is because in those situations where they felt it was warranted, they believed that God in his providence always ordains the outcome of everything. And so they could trust his providence knowing that they would be rolling that dice at that time and that God would give them the answer that was best. Now, we don't actually know the manner in which they cast lots. We, we don't have any record in the Bible like, you know, did it, was it a, I don't know, I, you nerds can tell me whether it's 14-sided die or I don't know that. I, did, I was never smart enough to play the Dungeon and Dragons games. I couldn't figure that out. But uh, I don't know, we don't know exactly what, what it was like, dice or what it was, but it was like that. It was like dice, casting dice. And in fact, one of the most popular passages quoted about casting lots is in Proverbs chapter 16, Verse 33, and this reflects like the belief system behind it at the time. Proverbs 16, 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So they, they had confidence that this would be a way to avoid human interference when they needed to make a decision and they would go for it. And you read about it in like Joshua 7 or Jonah 1, like you, diff, completely different reasons in which people would wind up casting lots. So why are they casting lots here? I mean, besides, there's a theological conviction, God's a God of providence, and we have, we've done this in the past, there's a historical context for us to do this, but why? Why don't they just pick one? And it's probably because Jesus picked the 12. 
Jesus picked the 12. And, a, and one of them has to be replaced. For some reason, clearly, they don't feel that it is within their privilege to make that choice. So they so here are two who clearly are qualified. And then they leave it not up to chance. They leave it up to God and they cast lots. So it falls to Matthias. Matthias is the new apostle. So why don't we cast lots here in the church? Why don't we do that? Sounds fun, actually. Casting lots. That sounds cool. That sounds cool. Casting lots. All the kind of cool dye you could buy. Like, I don't know. Just, it's something about it that sounds exciting. Like, oh, what's God going to do now? I mean, you throw them out there. Um, there's a couple of reasons why we don't do it. Number one, keep in mind, casting lots didn't happen all the time. Unique circumstances. Number two, this is the last time the church does it. In fact, it's the only time the church does it. it the last, we read about it in Scripture, even the, 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 the soldiers are casting lots for Jesus' garments, right, if you remember that. But this is the last time, and it's before the church receives the Holy Spirit, that they cast lots to replace an apostle. You see, they, from this point on, when making decisions as the church, God has given us the parameters. He's, he's given us instructions. We know how to appoint, how to gather. We know what we're supposed to do. He's given us the tools and he's given us his spirit. We each individually and collectively together, we have the Holy Spirit who gives us the wisdom that we need to function as God's people. So this appears to be the last time it happens. After Pentecost, it doesn't happen. We don't practice this because there's no command for us to do it. We're kind of big on that. No command to do it, then we don't have to do it. And in this case, probably not a good idea to do it. And it's not practiced by the early church. You can't find it anywhere. The churches aren't doing that. You don't find Catholics or Protestants doing this throughout the history of the church. You'll find some church somewhere that does it. There's always some, some kind of weird thing going on somewhere where they'll literally handle snakes or maybe they're throwing dice against the wall too. But uh, the point is, is that like th this really just has never been a thing that we do because we have God's word and we have God's spirit and that is enough. Pastor Brian, after first service, said, I'm not convinced. We will be, we will be uh, casting lots at the next members meeting. So we'll see if he's joking or serious. So they've got to cast these lots in it, and it falls to Matthias. And so now they're getting prepared, right? We're talking about getting prepared for the next thing that God's going to do through them. Now, how does this show us that God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. How do, how do we see that? Well, clearly, right? Judas was replaceable. You know why Judas was replaceable? Not because he was a loser. Not because he was a bad guy. He's replaceable because he's human. He's replaceable because he's an instrument that God chose to use, even if for some pretty dark stuff. People can be replaced, right? You know, that's such an insult, right, when somebody says, hey, you're replaceable. If they're saying that, it's not a compliment. You're like, oh, shoot. Um, I've either overstepped or they think I've overstepped and I've pretended that I'm more than I am. They're letting me know that I ain't no big thing. We're all ultimately replaceable. 
because nothing can stop the work of God. God doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes. Let me just give you two passages of scripture to kind of fill in maybe some of these blanks here. Matthew chapter three, beginning in verse seven. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. You see, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they thought, like, hey, listen, uh, we're good, okay? We're judging you, Jesus, because we know who we are. We're safe. Abraham is our father. We have the privilege. We have the rights. We have the covenants. We have all of this stuff. And Jesus says, don't get ahead of yourself. God can raise up children from Abraham from rocks. You are not needed. My favorite passage that addresses this is one that I go to a lot. I've got, I can't, I've lost track of how many times I've, I've studied this passage, meditated on this passage, shared this passage because it's so filled with so much relevant truth for life. But this is when, when Paul is in Athens and he is preaching. So it's a part of one of his messages, but he's not actually preaching to the church. He's preaching to uh, these Athenians, these, these non-Christians. And it says, starting in verse, we'll start in, well, we'll start in 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. It's a fantastic passage that says so much, but one of the points that Paul is making is, is that God doesn't need you. He doesn't need anything. You can't serve him as if he needs something. You need him. We need God. He doesn't need us. He chooses to use us. He chooses to bless us. He chooses us, yes, which is grace upon grace. But no, it's, it's, it's not that he needs anything at all. God does as he pleases, and no one can stop him. He gives, he takes away. He blesses the wicked and the righteous. No one can stop the plan of God. You know, one of the passages that says this clearly is Isaiah chapter uh, 14. Verse 27, for the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? The implied answer is nobody. You can't stop God. God does what he pleases. This is, this is, this is the magic, right, for me. This is the, this is the, the, the glorious mystery. God doesn't need anything. He is self-contained. He is self-existent. He is eternal. I can't help him 
in any way that he needs, but yet he chooses, he chooses to use me. He chooses to use you. I mean, just think Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus says, I'm sending you out to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Or in Acts chapter 1, 8, you're gonna receive the Holy Spirit, you're gonna receive power, and then you're gonna go out and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He graciously chooses to use us for his glory, for the good of mankind, for the spread of the gospel. This is humbling and exciting and motivating. There's no room to boast, right? Because God doesn't need you. He could use anybody. Think of uh, D.L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon, right? Two, like D.L. Moody, the American guy, Charles Spurgeon, English guy, same era, 19th century, big beards, big bellies, both Baptists, right? And so they're, they're the great evangelists of the day. Neither one of them went to seminary. They're just godly dudes that God chose to use. He chooses to use us. This is humbling, right? Because there's no room to boast, but it's so exciting because he's, he doesn't have to, but he chooses to. He, he, he brings us sinful, broken, weak Prone to failure, people, he brings us together to use. That is mind-blowing. But here's the thing. Here's the best part. This is, this is what I say. This is the magic part. Like, this is the part that, that thrills me. It's not just that God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us or delights to use us. It's that God doesn't need you, but he loves you. Like, that's, that's too much, right? That God doesn't doesn't need me, he's not lonely, he doesn't need me, but he loves me anyways. He he loves me while I'm a sinner. He loves me in my worst form. And then he comes to me. When I won't come to him, he comes to me, just like we sang today. God does not need you, but he loves you, he chooses you, he saves you. You remember... Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We, we looked at this during the Lord's Supper where Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. See, he doesn't need it. We need it. We need to be served. We need him. So he condescends to serve us by giving his life as a ransom for many. So, no, you're not necessary to God, but you are loved by God. And that is more than enough. How do we know God loves us? He sent his son to die on the cross for us so that all who believe in him do not perish but have everlasting life. Our sins are forgiven. We're cleansed in our consciences, in our hearts, in our souls. We're made to be righteous in his sight. We have every spiritual blessing because while he didn't need us, he loved us. So what we do here as we look to Christ together. Church, if, if you have any question about what God is going to do in your life or call you to do, know this. He's going to call you to act on his behalf. He's going to call you to move, to love, serve, sacrifice in your family, outside of your family, in the church, through the church, outside of the church. He's gonna call you to do this. And it's not because you're the only one who can do it. It's because he chose you to be the one to do it. 
And all of us as sinners need to know that your unnecessary status in the cosmos before the face of God doesn't make you irrelevant. It should make you marvel that even in light of that, God loves you and offers you redemption that can only be found in Christ. So let's look to him. I would encourage you, look to Christ, believe on him, and you will find more than purpose. You'll find God. He's not far from you. He's put you where you are, as Paul says in Acts 17. He's put you when you are so that you might seek him and find him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're asking that you would give us wisdom and insight into what it means to be your people. We know that we're supposed to be followers of Jesus, Lord, and we read your word and we, we read his words in your word. Lord, we, we, we dwell on it, we try to memorize it, we try to understand it, but ultimately, God, we want to be like your son. We wanna be like Christ. So we pray that you would sanctify us and change us in our hearts and our character and our very being and that as we are transformed, we can embrace our humble position of being your servants, people who serve at your pleasure not because we have earned it or merited it. And we ask God that every single person here, that all of us would look to Christ for our salvation, for our redemption, that in Christ we would all be made one. In Jesus' name, amen.